Father God, thank you for this new day that you have made, for your abundant blessings and your steadfast love and your mercy to us in Christ. Thank you for the time where we can uh, see what your scriptures reveal about you. And Lord, would you um, continue to sanctify us by your spirit as we open up your word in this time of teaching. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, we're now in our second part of our Doctrine of God series. And last week, we didn't quite finish um, the uh, existence of God. So we're going to pick up from there. And we started to look at um, what we call alternative views of, the, of God. And if you remember, the first one we got onto last week, or can anyone remember what, what that was? There you go. Okay, good, Patrick. Pantheism and panentheism. Very similar, slight distinction. Pantheism means? God is in everything. (laughs) Well, that's panentheism. Yeah, yeah, the N is in for Greek. So panentheism, God is within everything. Pantheism, God is everything. So very similar, uh, slight distinction. And it's this belief that, well, God is in everything. <laughs> okay. um, it's that God, there's no distinction between the creator and the creation. Okay. There's, just one, there's just one bubble and God is within that. Okay. So the animals are God. Um, there's just one um, all the animals are gods or have divine substance in them. Uh, the trees, the, the, the rivers, even us, we all link to this great circle of life. Perhaps you would have heard that expression. We all connected to this divine consciousness. Um, it's very much the, the, um, yeah, the idea of God today. That's what, as I said last week, it's what you're going to find on the the spirituality bookstore uh, bookshelf in the in the bookshops um, it's what you're gonna this type of spirituality you'll find uh, through Oprah and Dr Phil not our Dr Phil but <laughs> the other Dr Phil um, and Hinduism Buddhism progressive Christianity liberal Christianity is gonna say the similar similar thing. So let's go into the the, the second uh, alternative view of God and that is what we call Deism. Okay, so deism is the belief that God exists, but he's this impersonal being. He's so far removed from us and completely disinterested in creation that he doesn't really care about what's going on here. He may have created the universe, but then he just sort of sits somewhere else with his arms folded. Um, and not interested, not involved in his creation. So when people talk about oh, the man upstairs, you know, referring to God, it's they buy that's their default setting. They may acknowledge the uh, exist the existence of God, but he's not involved in their lives. He's just something out there, you know, not not a personal God, not in any relationship with us. So this view may um, stress what we call the transcendence of God. Okay, the transcendence of God is focusing on his otherness. 
Okay, and there, that's valid. I mean, this, our, the God of the Bible is transcendent, but this view says everything about God is transcendent. He's so other than us that he, he doesn't even connect with us. So it's almost, by default, it's uh, agnostic belief. You know, if God exists, yeah, so what? You know, he doesn't really have any impact on my life. Um, and kind of it is the functional view of, of the God of Islam, okay? and perhaps even contemporary Judaism. They acknowledge there's God, but because there's in both Judaism and Islam, there's no connection between God and us. We, we've, we've got the mediator, right, which is Christ, which is missing from both Islam and Judaism. And then the final alternative view of God is atheism. Okay, obviously, the belief that God doesn't exist. And increasingly these days um, is probably a minority view. Okay, it was the, it had its heyday during the um, era of uh, communism. Uh, the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc, atheism was the official religion of communist countries, and any belief in God was, you know, they were persecuted, put to death, okay? They were sent to the gulags. Believing Christians were, were sent off to, to, to exile in, in Siberia, okay? Don't forget this when people want to come back to communism and um, well, that it's communism at its heart, Marxist ideology is fundamentally hostile to God. It's, athe- it's rooted in atheism because it, it can't handle the existence of a creator because it believes the state is God. The state needs to take the place of God. The state needs to take the place of everything, including family, all kinds of community. So it, it's... It's by nature hostile to God. But thankfully, um, the Berlin Wall fell in the providence of God. The Soviet Union collapsed. And so th- this sort of stronghold of atheism has, has collapsed. And there, today, there are very few hardcore atheists. Probably the most popular ones are people like Richard Dawkins. You know, he was um, popular some years ago. He wrote the book called The God Delusion. But people who, who believe this hardcore atheism actually very few in number. Everyone has some kind of spirituality, misguided as it may be, of, of something. Good morning, Dylan and Jaden and Imogen. Welcome. All right, any questions? We just looked at pantheism, deism, atheism. Any questions about these alternative views of God? Do you come across them in your conversations during the week at all with work colleagues and family members and friends or movies or... Well, I suppose the, uh, uh, the Indian, uh, what do you call it, the religion? Hinduism. Hinduism. Yeah. Yeah, they always say that, yeah. 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 He was praying Krishna's name and in uh, <laughs> Gamesh's name. And, uh, Jesus had just one of them to the 
to the to the lot. Okay, we're all 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 on the same page here. Okay, well let's shift gear and look at how philosophers and also some Christian theologians over history have um, argued for the existence of God. Um, because we've got to understand, it, it's, it, you know, for the last well, 2,000 years, even plus the ancient Greeks, they also, um, you know, they philosophized about the logic of God. And so there have been a lot of people across history who've come up with with how do we justify both intellectually the existence of God? Welcome, Storm, and uh, uh, that's Imogen. Sorry, <laughs> okay. Welcome, girls. So the first argument for the existence of God, and you see, these are helpful, can be helpful in terms of what we call apologetics. Any idea what the word apologetics means? Okay, from the Greek word apologia, it's in our text this morning actually in Philippians 1. Apologia means defense. So it's the, the defense of the gospel. So Christian apologists have used these arguments that I'm going to lay out um, to defend the gospel. So let's have a look at them. First one is what we call the ontological argument. And this argument was developed by um, a a 11th century scholastic theologian called Anselm. And he taught that if you can have an idea of the perfect being, then that perfect being must exist. Okay, just bear with me. There's a lot of these are very philosophical. Okay, this is all philosophy here. So his quote from Anselm is, is, I have an idea of God Therefore, I have an experience of God. So the logic goes that if you, can ha- if you can perceive that there's a higher being, well, he must exist. Because how could you have that idea in you in the first place? Okay, it's not foolproof. Okay, it's attracted a lot of criticism. But it's just interesting. Okay, so that's the ontological argument. Any questions about that? Okay, we get into some others here. Maybe um, we'll see these others. So the second one is we call the cosmological argument. Welcome, Phil. Cosmological argument teaches that, well, everything in the world must have a cause, a, a beginning, an origin, because... It's impossible that things just spontaneously come into being on their own. Okay, so therefore, I argue that, well, the universe then has to have a cause too. It had to have been created by a divine being. It couldn't just come out from nothing on its own. It, it doesn't make any sense. So therefore, it's argued that God must exist because he was the cause of bringing everything into being. God is, is the, the origin of all these causes. And the, um, the guy who's famous for this view, we looked at him last week, uh, Italian theologian, the medieval 
period, Thomas Aquinas, okay, Tommaso d'Aquino, he argued for this. So any, any questions about that? Now, we often, we've been so conditioned to must accept an uh, irrationality these days that the universe just came into being spontaneously through a big bang. It's just taught as fact. We don't often interrogate that. I mean, how surely even a kid could, could get that that's not very logical for something to just come in the whole universe, stars and planets and organisms and everything, just to all by on its own accord, just come like that. Really? And it's just taught this fact and we just... We just have accepted all, all this time where for most of human history, you know, thinking philosophers haven't just, you know, gone along with that. Well, it's a very, it's a novel thought that it just, everything just came into being on its own accord. There's, there's you know, we argue that there's, there is a cause and that cause, our God is the origin of the cause. Any comments? Sure. Yeah, there there are connections between the two. Yeah, I certainly. Okay, the third argument we call the teleological argument. Okay, telos is the Greek word for the end point. Okay, so the argument goes like this: that there's we can look around us in the world and in, in um, the creation, and we can see evidence of order. We can see in evidence of intelligence i mean you just any scientist were to tell you this you look at cells under a microscope and you can see there's intelligence there there are cells working the dna is intelligence okay there's a a logic behind it there's a purpose to it there's a harmony that's throughout all of creation it's as if someone designed it that way. You know? So therefore, it's argued there must be an intelligent designer who brought it all into being and therefore God exists. Now, these seem like obvious to us, don't they? But, <laughs> but it, it, we can't assume that for, for a lot of people. They're saying that these are good arguments to, to you know, spark discussion with with unbelievers get people thinking a bit so any questions about the teleological argument sorry the argument from yeah 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 it's the same same thing t-e-l-e-o-l-o-g-r-c-a-l okay then fourthly sorry Phil Purely dependent on your presuppositions yeah. and your framework that you can 
So what I've realized, I've looked into this a lot, I'm scientifically orientated and I've looked down microscopes and cells and all the rest. Um, the, the, you know, the, the, the evidence, fossil records, the way that they say things supposedly came about um, actually fit creation better than evolution. Right. Um, you know, the Great Flood, there's evidence for that mm. all around. In fact, my, I think most of the fossil record was due to the Great Flood and not due to millions and millions and millions of years. Because there's many, there are many areas where different, supposedly different um, uh, strata, different layers of rock with different, you know, they say that the oldest is at the bottom and the youngest is at the top. But in certain areas, those are intermixed. And, uh, you know, you've got mammals and rift and dinosaurs, in some cases, buried together. Sure. So those are things they don't like to explain. They don't fit with the old narrative. Sure. Of, you know. um, so the point really being, it depends where, where you're coming from and what you're wanting to explain. Yeah. Because the evidence is actually, it's not specific to one argument mm -hmm. of evolution that necessary. Because people often say, well, what about the fossils? What yeah. about carbon dating? Yeah. Where it actually doesn't always fit that worldview, and there's a lot of different ways to explain it. Yeah, absolutely. It's very interesting to keep an open mind about it. Yeah. There's some good websites, some answers in Genesis as well. Sure. Very, very good. Well, a part of this. They use real science. Yeah. They're not magic, they're actually scientists, PhDs. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, thanks, Will. Because one of the sections that we are going to cover as part of this Doctrine of God course is creation. It's considered under the Doctrine of God. So we'll spend a whole lot of time on looking at evolution and all, all of that stuff. Okay, so teleological argument. Then we've got what we call the moral argument. And this argument goes like this, that because all humans have moral sensibilities and judgments, we, broadly speaking, have instinct for right and wrong, well, therefore, there must be a divine judge and a lawgiver who's embedded morality into the fabric of creation. And because this is so, therefore, there must be a God who's the highest good. Now, closely related to this is what we call the universal consent, which is that if you look around at all cultures and tribes and people groups around the world, they all, there's no original culture, aboriginal culture, that is atheist. No. They all have some sense of the divine, even if that div the idea of the divine is completely flawed, because they're typically going to be worshipping the creation. That's the default setting of man is paganism. That's why the tribes in the Amazon who haven't heard Christ, they typically are worshipping um, the great spirit being who's within the trees or the moon or, you know, whatever it is, the ancestors, that's all creation. Okay, so this, this sense of the divine, how do you explain this? Okay, Calvin called it the sensus divinitatis, that in every person there's this, what St. Augustine called the God-shaped hole. 
Why is that there? Why would that be there? Well, because God created us. Because we, every single person, we image bearers. So if the sense of the divine is within every single culture and person, well then it's got to lead us to the conclusion that God created humans with this desire to want to know him. So any questions about those two views, which are kind of related? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And this God having placed in us this moral compass, or we call natural law, which is summed up in the Ten Commandments, is an expression of God's common grace. So God upholds the universe from the Noahic covenant. He upholds the universe. He sustains the seasons. He restrains evil. And all that is, and, and he enables depraved people to do a lot of good, actually. Um, and that's only a result of, of God's common grace of restraining the evil. If he just kind of lifted his hands off the universe or the world, um, it, it would be chaotic because our propensity, because we are, you know, we're born, born into original sin, we're born into, we're totally depraved. And yes, humans are obviously capable of incredible evil, but that is, even that is restrained by God's grace. It's like it's common grace. Okay, so how do we evaluate these views overall? Well, as believers in Christ, we, we don't actually need them for our own faith because we believe that in God's existence through self-revelation in the Scriptures. So none of these are necessary for us in order to believe in Jesus all they, these views are doing is they're showing us how people have tried to rationalize the existence of God. Now, obviously, you see none of them are perfect, but some certainly can be helpful in um, helping us to convince others of, of, of God's existence. So they, they can be helpful apologetics tools for us. Okay, I think let's finish off with, with this, which is... That faith in God's existence is a heart issue. I think this is what we were getting to with Ryan last week. Uh, he asked some really good questions. Well, it was, it was encouraging. So, as we've seen, Scripture doesn't set out to prove the existence of God. It just assumes that that's why the first verse of the Bible is in the beginning God created the heavens and, and the earth. So really the main problem today is not atheism, but it's actually idolatry. Hey, there's this constant pull to worship everything else besides God. There's constant pull to worship the creation, whether it's money, sex, power, people, other you know, cars, our work, family, pleasure, all these things that are, a lot of them are not necessarily bad in themselves, but 
they become a problem when we worship them, when they become an idol, when they take the place of, of God. And so what we do when that happens is that we worship the creation instead of the creator, which is the sin that lies at the heart of all sin. We see in Romans 1.25. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creation instead of the creator who is forever blessed. Amen. So this is why the verses just before that in Romans 1, 18 to 23, say that for the wrath of God has, is revealed from heaven. Welcome, Kevin. Hello, Mel. Well, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by the unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, and divine nature, have been clearly perceived since, ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they, they are without excuse. Okay, so that's what we looked at last week with, with Ryan, um, that you... There's no, no one can truly say, heart of hearts, that God doesn't exist, because you look outside... And the creation, the beauty of the creation is evidence in itself that there's a creator who brought it all into being. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So... It's clear that, that deep down everyone knows of God's existence through general revelation, through looking at the creation. Okay, it's obvious through the creation that God exists. You don't you need to prove his existence. So all humans know about God, but because of our depraved nature, we pervert and suppress that knowledge, and instead we worship idols. And that's why scripture doesn't say much about atheism. I think the only couple of verses that tend towards atheism are Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, which both say in verse 1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. <laughs> and yes, yeah, so it basically calls atheists fools. Um, the focus in scripture is more on the worship of false gods, of, of idols, of, of uh, polytheism, the worship of many gods. That's why Israel's always ensnared, not in atheism. Never, actually, is atheism an issue for, for Israel. The issue is that they're always stumbling into worshiping of Baal and Asherah and Molech and you know, all the, the gods of the nations, false worship. And two, in the, in the New Testament, the Gentiles were called out of not atheism in the Greco-Roman world, but of their pa pagan pantheistic culture. They were all worshipping the gods and goddesses of Rome and Greece. And so Paul's sermons, there, to, when he's preaching to the Gentiles, he addresses this paganism when they're worshipping, specifically in Acts 17, they worship an unknown god. So, Scripture consistently roots faith or lack of faith 
in God as a condition of the heart and not of logic. Because on the one hand, it's, it's the foolish heart which doesn't believe in God, Psalm 14 tells us. And the fool exchanges the glory of God for the worship of creation. Welcome, Janneke. But on the other hand, it's the poor in spirit who inherit the kingdom of heaven, as Jesus teaches in Matthew 5. And those who approach with God with a heart of faith, Hebrews 11.6 says, whoever would draw near to God must believe he exists. So what's then the best proof for God's existence? Any takers in the light of all this? Okay, which is basically the preaching of the gospel. Okay, the best defense for the existence of God is testifying to what he has done in history. And that's what scripture consistently testifies. If you look at the apostolic preaching in Acts, that's all Paul and Peter and the rest of the apostles are doing. They're reminding people what God did through redemptive history, through how he saved Israel etc etc so the preaching of the gospel is its own defense because it shows the historical reality and the transformative power of god so 1 corinthians 15 5 to 3 let's close up with this it's one of the clearest statements of the gospel and it proclaims the historical reality of the gospel god's greatest act in human history through jesus christ so if 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 5. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Paul received this gospel through revelation from Jesus himself. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Okay, His death was prophesied in the Old Testament. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve and later to the five hundred. So he's rooting it in a historical reality. This death and resurrection of Jesus actually happened at a point in human history. People saw saw the resurrected Christ. Well, you know what? You can go and chat to Cephas. When this letter was written, he was there. You go and chat to the 12. They were still around. You can chat to the 500 who also saw the resurrected Christ. This is not myths. This is not a bunch of gobbledygook, belief in the spaghetti monster. This is historical fact of God coming down to his people, saving his people through his son, Jesus Christ. So any last questions? Wonderful. Look forward to part three next week. Let's pray.